You're listening to The Recap by Drawing Capital, the best place to dissect the week's key events in financial markets and technology. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security. Opinions, estimates, and projections in this podcast are subject to change. This podcast is based on current public information believed to be reliable, but no representation is made to accuracy or completeness. An investment in any strategy, including the strategies referenced in this podcast, involves a high degree of risk. Clients of Drawing Capital may maintain positions discussed in this podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Recap. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing kind of a grab bag of of items here. So we have recently China's uh, regulatory bodies taking a closer look at uh, Chinese traded stocks on U.S. exchanges the impact of some of those regulations. We'll be talking about the Delta variant and other variants of COVID, what that means for the impact on the future of, of work and really maybe the uh, broader economy and also taking a look at real estate, uh, mortgage rates, interest rates, and the expectations for that part of the market as well. Also, another announcement for us We have also launched a a venture arm of our business, and really for the next few weeks, we're going to be heads down focusing on uh, our clients and and making sure that everything is running as efficiently and we're getting the best opportunities as possible. We will continue with our newsletter on Substack, drawingcapital.substack.com, and uh, we will try to get podcast episodes done uh, when we have the time to do so, so expect maybe to see these less less frequently, certainly than a uh, weekly basis here. But anyway, to kick us off uh, on the China situation, Sagar, I think I want to pass this one to you here. You know, what have we seen with companies like Didi and uh, across the board? What are, What's happening with Chinese-based stocks in the market right now? Yeah, cer- certainly a lot is happening there. Uh, I think first and if we look at Didi in particular, and I think this is broadening out to other large cap uh, Chinese tech companies, is that regulatory scrutiny is is definitely increasing. And furthermore, there's been a swapping of several high profile individuals at these tech companies uh, for other leaders. So we saw this uh, with Alibaba. We saw this with Pinduoduo. Um, and we may see this with other leaders as well. So I think what this is challenging um, the status quo of a government versus an enormously dominant private sector. And so we have to keep in mind that governments generally like to maintain a monopoly of, of power, of their money, of, 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 of influence and variety of things. And when that monopoly is challenged, particularly by a high growth, scalable tech company, uh, then there is going to be some challenges. We actually see the same thing here in America. um, And increasingly, we're seeing antitrust concerns and and other scrutiny and and other uh, issues come up between the American government uh, against the uh, large American tech companies as well. So this is both a Chinese phenomena and American phenomena, uh, but we're seriously seeing it more and more in China. Something to uh, point out more on a financially nuanced perspective is that when some of these stocks, they're trading either through ADRs or uh, VIEs, which are variable interest entities, these are actually, like in the case of VIEs, 
they are not actually representing the actual ownership of a Chinese company. They are representing of a cash flow pass-through mechanism, um, but it is not actually direct ownership. And I think that sometimes gets lost for many investors that like to abstract away the complexity associated with simply you know, buying something with a few clicks or a, a couple of thumb taps on your mobile app. Uh, it may not seem like a, a, a big difference, uh, but it, it, it really is. Um, and when things like this start to happen, then we really s- start to see the nuances associated with what is actually publicly traded, publicly listed on an American stock exchange with direct ownership and voting rights and voting control versus uh, something that has none of those. And so I think th- those are some of the key nuances. Of course, there's ongoing conflict between uh, China, Hong Kong, and, and Taiwan. Um, and so that's also adding extra geopolitical uncertainty and complexity uh, to the situation. Uh, one thing of also note is that many American companies actually cannot operate uh, in China, uh, yet many Chinese companies can also operate in other countries. So we're, we're seeing this uh, bilateral situation where in some cases, some companies can operate in others, they cannot, um, and, and vice versa. And, and so this is increasingly going to have, uh, in, in my opinion, just greater, um, uh, a greater uh, kind of headline risk, uh, so to speak. Now, that being said, taking uh, all of that aside, there are some of the most phenomenally globally scalable businesses that are being built in China today uh, or have been built. And so if we look at some of the gross merchandise volumes in the case of e-commerce, or if we look at last mile delivery, food delivery, ride sharing, a lot of fintech startups, some of the largest money market funds in existence, a lot of these are now Chinese companies. So nothing to take away with the business growth associated with these companies. Uh, They're permeating across many, many layers. So it's not just uh, internet software. It's not just enterprise software, but it's in social media. It's in fintech. It's in insurance tech. It's any type of tech overlay layer is increasingly uh, having large growth opportunities, particularly in China uh, and and Southeast Asia as well, might I add. Um, I know that was a, a lot to cover as like an opening starting point. Uh, and so I'll pass it to, to Jugal there uh, for his follow-up comments. Yeah, Sagar, everything you said, I I definitely agree with. Uh, one thing I'd also say is that I think China in general wants its companies to grow as much as possible. Of course, it doesn't want these companies to get so much power uh, such that uh, it may run into issues where the government kind of loses its control over the people in terms of uh, controlling finances or technology uh, or other aspects of uh, its citizens' lives. Uh, but you know, we, it could be that China is seeing what large tech power is actually having in the U.S. where, you know, there's the, the government almost seems like it's uh, losing its, its uh, I wouldn't say this so condescendingly, but in a sense, you know, the, the big tech companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, they have this power to, you know, censor uh, anybody on Twitter. We saw Twitter and Facebook censor President Trump. Uh, and so uh, this this is clearly an act of how companies can gain so much power as to almost, uh, I wouldn't say overthrow, but they, they can definitely do something against the government uh, that the government doesn't want. Whereas in China, I think the government never wants that to happen, right? Government wants to have total control uh, if possible. Uh, but yeah, in general, I think uh, 
I, you brought up a really a good point about how it, no one's really stopping Chinese companies from expanding into other countries, though there was, you know, issues with TikTok uh, in, in the U.S. and other countries. You know, I, I think India also banned TikTok. Uh, but but in general, I do tend to agree that most Chinese companies don't have uh, any barrier to entry in uh, the U.S. or Europe. But obviously, U.S. and Europe, European companies, whether it's, uh, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, they do have barriers of entry into China. So with that, I'll, I'll hand it back to Sean for additional comments. Yeah, great. Thank you both. I think that provides a very good overview of, of what's happening there currently and really seeing that materialize in stock prices today for people that owned um, Didi or Pinduoduo or maybe you know even a, in a Chinese-based or emerging markets-based uh, index there may wake up and, and say, you know, what the heck is happening here? But let's, let's maybe transition to uh, Delta variant and, and other COVID-related variants. Um, what we're seeing now is, is very interesting. And I, I think both people are glad, certainly, that those, ha- those that have had vaccines, but also maybe a little bit worried about what future variants may bring um, to communities around the world and in just seeing that the um, R-naught of this Delta variant is so much higher. And you've seen a, a big spike in cases around the world, but hospitalizations and deaths are, are still you know, flat, trending lower, the the effectiveness of vaccines ha- can really been, be seen in the data there. And you've had a mixed bag of responses, right? I mean, you can see in Sydney, Australia, there have been very, very dramatic uh, lockdowns where, you know, people in certain neighborhoods, there's curfews, you literally can't leave. They're like barricaded in there. Um you know, schools will not be uh, back in session. Businesses, if they're not, you know, under a in a very small group of absolutely essential needs, grocery stores and, and things like that are completely shut down. Um, you know, the expectations for what's going to happen in, in the future are, are very uncertain. And it seems that this virus just continues to evolve. Different strains come out, they pass rapidly and, and everyone's real concern, I think, is, um, A, you know, this is being passed around children a lot more because kids under 12 in the United States can't be vaccinated. And that's a major point of, of concern, both for parents and, and everyone, because you can still, you know, test positive, obviously, even though you've been vaccinated. And then what happens if, you know, although in in this variant that we're seeing now, uh, hospitalizations and deaths have, have stayed at bay, but what happens if, you know, there's a, a virus where that turns around? And Sagar, I know that you have spent quite a deal of time focusing on biotech and that space, um, you know, courses through through Stanford. Your knowledge there is, is very good. Um, I, I'll pass it to you there. I mean, what are your thoughts about that changing, how, how quickly things evolve? I mean, we've seen how, uh, how fast this can move just globally it is, is pretty insane, but would love to get your thoughts there. Sure. Thanks, Sean. Uh, yeah, certainly a, a lot of great questions there. And uh, th- thanks thanks for the compliments, of, of course, as always. And so ki- kind of five key touch points I'd, I'd like to mention. And then I think we can certainly uh, dive into a, a deeper dialogue. I, I think there's a lot of uh, interesting nuance 
uh, an unfortunate consequence uh, with the spread uh, of the Delta variant that originally came out of uh, India, uh, but has uh, now spread worldwide. And so I think, I, I guess, point number one is that there is a spectrum in the severity of infections. And so what do we mean by that is that if you are fully vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine, for example, there, there was data uh, in a research paper uh, I read um, a while ago that uh, coming data out of Israel suggesting that about one third um, of the Pfizer vaccines are, or, or rather, I'll, I'll take a step back, uh, about 65% or so um, uh, is the a critical number in terms of effectiveness against the Delta variant. Now, some may see that as like really good, and some may see say say, oh no, there's a one in one in three chance that you may still get the Delta variant even after getting uh, fully vaccinated with the uh, uh, Pfizer vaccine. And so, depending on uh, your personal viewpoint, there, uh, what is really important to note is that many people. Uh, again, this is all probabilities, so there's, there's, there will always be individual nuanced cases. Uh, but in terms of probabilities, the probability or the chance of likelihood of having a severe uh, infection and a severe negative outlook, such as hospitalization um, or possibly fatality, is very low if you are fully vaccinated. So let's just make sure that, that that's very clear, is that a lot of people should be getting fully vaccinated. If you haven't done so already, um, there, there is a strong urging now by many, many people to get vaccinated um, unless you're in this select group of people that, uh, for whatever reason, um, chooses not to. But I think the reality is that many of the uh, coronavirus deaths associated um, uh, with the Delta variant um, over the past month have come from people that are not vaccinated. And so people that are choosing to remain unvaccinated are essentially opting into a continuation of the coronavirus pandemic. So that is pretty scary there. Uh, the uh, second component here to this is that this is not this is not just a one for one every individual. This is a pu public and collective health situation. And what that means is that unvaccinated people are actually creating risk for everyone, including vaccinated people, because the coronavirus has greater opportunity to infect unvaccinated people, but then also mutate into other variants. So we're seeing variants come out of South America, out of India, uh, out of other countries. Uh, earlier last year, we saw there was like a London uh, uh, situation. There was one in America. So all these variants are coming about because of the mutations. If we look at it from a spike protein perspective, you know how it's actually infecting um, uh, the body and, and the like, that's, that's really important to note. And that's why there's so much emphasis on vaccinations and, and promoting a vaccination campaigns. Another component, uh, and I think this has been shared by uh, a number of individuals too, is that there won't be a zero coronavirus case situation anytime soon. So there will be a balancing line or balancing act between the economic prosperity of individuals versus the health of the citizenry. Uh, and so that balancing act, uh, of course, is very, very difficult on a public policy side. But the idea of, you know, trying to lock down the entire country again, unless there's something really, really severe, I, I think there's just a lot of people that would be very against that situation, particularly if we if you're already locked down for most of 2020, you're looking to uh, go out and return to some level of normalcy. Uh, and now all of a sudden, if there is any type of huge shutdown or huge lockdown effect, 
uh, I think that that's going to create more anxiety amongst uh, the general citizenry and population. Uh, I guess double clicking uh, more on the biotech side, since, since you mentioned it, if, if you think about what the vaccine really is, the mRNA is, um, is the transmission mechanism, uh, but, but really how uh, that is embedded is actually gets embedded into a lipid nanoparticle. Uh, and so that goes into the body. And so the idea is basically to retrain the body to develop these antibodies so that in the event that you're infected, then the body can uh, first uh, tar- first seek it out, target it, uh, and then kill it, right? And, and so th- that's the whole idea is that the body is just going to be much more prepared in the event that it does get infected uh, to just seek it out and just des- destroy it right away. Uh, and so that's that's the whole idea with the vaccine. But more importantly, too, is that it, it promotes the health and safety uh, of, of the individuals as well as the general citizenry. So I, that gives hopefully uh, an overlay. Of course, my description of, of the, how the vaccine is, is actually transmitted is very much an oversimplification. We can certainly do a deep dive uh, on that if you wish. But the idea is, one, vaccinations the, and the significance of them to the spectrum and the, and the severity of the infection, depending on if you have or have not gotten vaccinated. Um, this idea of zeroism is is really misinformation. There there will be continuing coronavirus cases, unfortunately, uh, for a long time circulating around the world. Um, and, and the idea that this is a public health good, this is not just a one person gets infected uh, and then that's it. This is a viral uh, disease um, that that does spread uh, often via respiratory uh, type behavior. So. Lot, lot to unpack there. Uh, I'll give it to Jugal uh, for some follow-up commentary and some stats on the on the Delta variant there. Thanks, Agar. I think my primary thoughts on the Delta variant are that one, I agree with you. It's not going to go anywhere. It's going to be just like the flu or you know your average cold. Uh, people will get it from time to time, but it'll reach a point where it's you know we have that herd immunity, and the, even if something does get, uh, even if the, the virus gets mutated and we have a variant going around, uh, you know, hope, hopefully there are, uh, there's enough biotechnology in place to make another vaccine for that variant fairly quickly if it becomes something very serious. Uh, but we do definitely need to get people uh, to understand that the vaccine is a good thing to have. Uh, that is definitely step one. Uh, and then after that, it's also good to have a lot of protocols in place uh, to have people uh, you know, wear masks and stay home if something were to break out again. I think the biggest, uh, I think the biggest learning that we had since the, the major pandemic uh, in, in 2020 uh, was that uh, people now, like if the Delta variant were to come back uh, and be very, very serious, then I think people are a little more prone to be like staying home uh, you know, not going out, not having large gatherings and wearing their mask. Whereas before, I think a lot of people denied uh, that this pandemic was even real. And that had very, very detrimental effects on the the spread of the virus and uh, how many casualties it had. The other thing I wanted to point out, and we've talked about this a bit offline, is, uh, you know, Bill Maris uh, mentioned this on, on Bloomberg, uh, which was that Really, these days, biotechnology has advanced so much that a high school student even could make something uh, in, a, in a matter of days, if not less, uh, in their, you know, just in their bedroom. And so uh, we don't know really 
really know what happened with the, co the COVID uh, virus and how it came to be. I know there's a lot of speculation about how it's sourced, um, but I still don't think anyone knows 100%. Um, but if, if this were to be a man-made thing, like we're, we're very th thankful, obviously, that uh, it was not deadlier than it was. It wasn't anything like the bubonic plague or that killed, you know, tens of millions of people. Uh, but it definitely had a lot of casualties. And I, I think there's just a lot of learnings we have to keep keep in mind. You know, we, we have to be able to have these protocols in place that, that people can listen to the CDC or the government or uh, any experts in, in uh, hospitalization and medical experts, et cetera, et cetera, that you, you should, you know, wear your mask and stay home and stay away from people. Uh, but unfortunately, the pessimistic side of me thinks that we've had previous pandemics uh, in terms of like, uh, you know, the, the like SARS uh, and the Ebola. Um, you know, these ha things happen every uh, couple of years or every decade or so. And it's possible that we're very good at um, keeping ourselves safe now because the last pandemic was literally less than a year ago. But uh the, the next time that a real pandemic happens, it's possible that's, you know, eight, nine years away and people again forget uh, just how bad the previous one was. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully we're getting better and better over time. Uh, but those those are just my general thoughts about the Delta variant. Um, I'm going to hand it back to Sean now. Yeah, great. I think let's just maybe jump into the last topic here where we're going to be discussing just interest rates, you know, mortgages, the housing market in general. In the Bay Area, we've certainly seen um, just just a crazy market. It has been for a long time. Uh, high prices, people paying cash, well over offering. I mean, you have uh, this environment that is just so conducive to sellers getting incredible offers right now because you have rates and mortgage rates that are basically you know all time low. If you can lock in a thirty year fixed mortgage for you know three percent or less, is unbelievably low. At the same time, you have communities like this that are driven uh, very heavily by technology stock prices in the area. A lot of it, the employees live here and they have equity-based compensation. The prices there, their equity value has gone up. Um, their other stock market investments have, have gone up. We saw today that, you know, Fang Man uh, stocks are now have a total uh, market cap collectively of $10 trillion, which is just absolutely insane for one. But um, that's bleeding through to, to market prices. Things are getting bid up. Uh, inventory is really quite low. Um, you know, it, it seems like one of those things that, you know, this, say this can't last forever. <laughs> it ends up uh, lasting longer than, than people expected. But uh, I know Jugal's going through the, a little bit of that process now. Personally, maybe I'll kick it to him for some of what he's been seeing, just personal insight there. Yeah, I'd be happy to give some commentary on this. I've been, I'm in the process of looking for a home right now, and it's been a couple months. Uh, clearly, the best time to buy a home was sometime in December when interest rate, uh, mortgage rates were at their all-time low, around 2.3 or so percent. Um, now they're around 2.7-ish, 2.8-ish. Uh, and the thing I've been seeing is that uh, first I was looking, you know, for houses that were, you know, two to three years old. Uh, but the day, like the day that I would look at them, you know, they've been, uh, been bought up, uh, almost within two or three days. Uh, sometimes the, the properties that you see on Zillow are actually not even for sale anymore, but, you know, 
people that managed those listings uh, just didn't have time to take them off. Uh, sometimes the other thing I've noticed is that uh, people are putting like Zillow does not have actually the most accurate uh, information on housings. You'll see like square footage amounts that don't actually match uh, what you'll see in person. Uh, but it doesn't matter because people literally across the entire U.S., uh, maybe 10 state, states away from you are actually purchasing that house without even looking at it in person. Uh, they're just doing virtual tours or just looking at pictures if they think it's good and the price per square footage based on that number. Uh, even whether that number is accurate or not is uh, is is accurate. Um, you know, people are still just buying stuff. You know, we just one of my brother's friends, uh, one of her neighbors' um, places in in the apartment complex that she's in. Uh, the renters often uh, called the landlords, you know, for uh, input on you know maybe a light went out or a sink is leaking. But the, the landlords, you know, respond back like, hey, I don't know what to do because I live in Arizona and I've never seen the property before. Uh, so this just goes to show you what what it's been like. Um, the other thing I'll say is that there's been tons of construction going on. Uh, I can say that is true for a lot of areas in the East Coast. Uh, perhaps you can give some more insight about what's going on um, uh, in your areas. But uh, yeah, a lot of inventory is in the process of being built, but a lot of the already built inventory that's two or three years old has been very, very low, as you mentioned before. Uh, and that just makes people bid higher and higher for the inventory that's left, unfortunately. And they're allowed to do that because again, mortgage rates are super low right now, You know, 2.8%, 2.7%. Uh, closing costs are fairly low as technology gets better with things like uh, you know, uh, Zillow and, and better.com. Uh, and all these sort of tech-enabled mortgage lenders that offer lower costs to getting a mortgage, uh, that just enables more people to put higher bids on stuff. And uh, this really just goes back to the idea of uh, buy now, pay later with like firms like Affirm. You're just doing this with houses instead. Uh, people are taking advantage of it. Um, and uh, you know, I'm just going to hand it back to you, Sean, because I, th- I think you have some additional comments here. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I would add to that is, you know, cost of housing rates is only one component, right? I mean, if you're looking to buy a house and people are saying, okay, you know, maybe this property needs a little bit of work, but we can get it at a slight discount. Um, Maybe those people are, you know, professionals that want to come in and flip the house. If they can do the work themselves, that's fantastic. And, you know, they can find a competitive point in the market. But for, you know, everyone else, myself included, if you need to hire contractors, and again, I'm talking from the standpoint of the Bay Area here and you know, some of the West Coast, maybe up north as far as Tahoe. I've you know just heard from other folks in that area as well. But people cannot get contractors you know, in any sort of reasonable time. I mean, I've heard quotes going out as far as like 2023. Um, and that just adds this other crazy dynamic to the marketplace where you know, you think you may be getting a deal on something, but you won't be able to get the work done for a while. Or if you are, it's going to be just at a massive premium. And again, just one of those things that requires you to, th- to think about the additional capital that's going to need to go into this place where you say, okay, you know, I'm paying X dollars for um, this house, but it's going to go, you know, X plus some percentage over asking plus then these renovations that need to get done, A, not in a timely manner, and B, at a premium because of uh, the contractor market there. So, I mean, for people that can get some of the work done themselves, um, that's becoming a huge benefit uh, as well. 
uh, Sagar, we haven't heard from you in a couple minutes, so <laughs> give it to you for any extra thoughts there. Yeah, sure. There's certainly, I, I think you, you both of you covered uh, a lot of the dynamics going on uh, in, in the market uh, from a nice uh, qualitative uh, perspective, uh, as well as I think more uh, from an anecdotal uh, perspective in the case of uh, Jewel specifically going through uh, the day-to-day emotions in that arena. I, I guess putting some, some numbers uh, behind uh, the narrative there, um, we'll focus first on uh, the Bay Area and then we'll expand out uh, nationwide. Um, and so zoom out, so to speak. Um, in America, but especially in the Bay Area, the buying power, and I would say this is true of uh, major cities as well. So I would in- include Seattle, LA, uh, Austin, and uh, Boston, and and a few other cities uh, in this area. Is espe- uh, so especially amongst these uh, regions, the buying power of many individuals has dramatically increased uh, with the rise in software, cloud computing, and big tech companies. And so as a quick uh, as a quick data point here is, for example, the tech-heavy NASDAQ QQQ fund was up 48% last year and is already up another 16% so far in 2021. Uh, Combine that with the record-breaking amount of liquidity from IPOs and SPACs. And what it turns out is that actually many tech employees have access to liquidity after the six-month IPO lockup on those shares, which means you can now sell these shares uh, convert it into cash, and then that cash can then be used to to buy a home if, if that's the goal. Uh, so that's from a tech perspective solely of looking at IPO activity, SPAC activity, uh, and the rise in NASDAQ, combined with the fact that there's a lot of data that would suggest that savings uh, rates have actually dramatically increased for a certain cohort of individuals across America. And so when you see higher buying power via high, r- higher asset prices in one's uh, personal portfolio, and then you combine that with higher savings rates. So then you can either have more cash that's available for a down payment or you're reinvesting that cash back into more investments that go more up in value. And then all of a sudden, from an asset value perspective, the buying power increases. So that's just on the asset side uh, from that perspective. Then on top of that, now we can even look at uh, the combination of low interest rates, uh, competition amongst fintech mortgage providers, plus access to low cost securities based asset loans. Uh, such as cre- uh, credit lines, um, uh, margin loans, and other interest-only products, that they are also combining uh, or a combined force uh, as a combined force, increasing the individual buying power. So you, we, ha- we so we're seeing this on the rate side, uh, uh, on the interest rate side. We're also seeing this on the financial asset side. Um, we also see this from all cash buyers. So as a quick data point, I, I found this to be one of the most fascinating uh, home statistics. Here is that an analysis of county records. Uh, from Redfin, and then it was reported by a Bloomberg article in July 2015, found that 30% of U.S. home purchases in the first four months of 2021 were all cash. So if you think about it, that's 30%. So three in 10 homes, all cash, um, according to that analysis. And then furthermore, private equity firms like Blackstone and, and many others are increasingly buying and renting out single family homes, multifamily housing, and commercial properties. And so because of the scope and size and scale of these businesses, they fundamentally can underwrite properties uh, at a much lower cost of capital, which means they can afford to pay slightly higher prices or even, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent markups in in some certain cases and still uh, earn their hurdle rate of return. Um, Or alternatively, uh, they can have quicker uh, access to financing, better terms. Um, or, or other uh, competitive advantages at play that then they can market to their uh, owned end investor there. 
So that's what we're seeing in the all cash side. Uh, if we see, if we look, take a look at the policy perspective, we can actually see that certain things such as the development of ADUs is actually increasing individual buying power once again, because a higher home price can now be potentially afforded by renting out the ADU unit to cover the property tax or part of the mortgage payments. So ADUs are, are really pitched as increasing supply, particularly uh, in certain regions of America that really promote this idea of nimbyism um, um, and anti-building rhetoric. Um, so on one side, ADUs are great in that it increases supply, uh, increases uh, rental uh, availability. Uh, but what it's doing is actually also contributing uh, to the rising asset prices of homes because now the individual buying power is going up. So we covered it from policy perspective, from private equity buyers, from all cash buyers, from the rise of tech, com- uh, tech companies, uh, increasing personal balance sheets, rise of savings, low interest rates. All of these uh, components are really fueling this fire of higher buying power. Uh, And when you have higher buying power combined with monetary debasement uh, of the currency because of the fact that over the past 10 years, we've seen the M2 money supply grow at a rate of about 8.4%. This is really the kindling for this huge real estate boom that we're seeing there. So a lot of data to unpack there. Hopefully that provides uh, that uh, data-driven narrative to in, inform the uh, the personal anecdotes as well as the qualitative data that you're they're seeing that you're seeing and reading about there. Great, thanks, Agar. Well, I think that is a wonderful note to end on here. Um, we covered quite a bit again. Um, you know, Chinese regulatory authorities and corresponding stock prices. We talked about COVID variants. We talked about interest rates and in, in mortgages and the real estate market. Um, hope this was insightful. And until next time, we hope to see you again. Uh, If you're inclined, check out ventures.drawingcapital.com. Something we're very excited about here and hope to see you soon. Take care.